This is Mike Rasmussen at Painted Stave Distilling. Pour a dram and settle in. This is the Cask Chasers podcast. All right, Chasers, you hear that hum in the background? Well, that's machinery. That's actually fans. Uh, I am in a distillery right now in the back room uh, at one of my favorite distillers. Um, And I mean that not only because they're in my backyard, uh, but because it's kind of where I started my little love for uh, passion for whiskey was at this little distillery that's grown into something really, really cool. Um, Shockingly, this is the first time we've had Mike here on the show, although Mike and I have done many projects together i've helped them fill some bottles we've uh we've gotten some of their new cool stuff that, uh, over time as it's come we've watched them grow and uh i just thought you know what it's about time um we get him on the show and we chat a little bit about how how important he is to me so uh <laughs> without further ado mike man welcome welcome to the podcast hey glad to be here yeah glad you're to be here. you're wearing a kilt <laughs> yeah i just want i um my uh this is one of those moments where um it's a slight revenge on my mother um she this morning decided to send me some random video of like somebody you know wearing a kilt and i was just like well you know what mom i have one and i'm gonna put it on and then i'm going to ride my scooter around town and see if i can you know uh, and uh, it also is fantastic because it's the opportunity to like annoy my staff just a little bit and any chance that you have that you can really in this industry to uh Add a little levity for, uh, yeah. for the start of a Sunday, I think, is a good plan. So, And just to paint that picture, um, so we're, we're parked in the parking lot, you know, waiting for you to open. <laughs> and uh, I think my wife texted you, hey, we're here for setting up. And here you come on your electric scooter uh, <laughs> and you're in your, in your uh, stand-up uh, yeah, we, yeah. We, yeah, uh, scooter and uh, your kilt. And I'm like, we're all like, well, Mike's here. So there you go. <laughs> But that's true distiller fashion. You guys are like some of the smartest distillers are some of the smartest people I know. We'll get a little bit into your 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 background and you can uh, you can uh, gloat on yourself for a little while. Distillers are some of the smartest people I know, but yet some of the most in the best way eccentric, very <laughs> mad, very Willy Wonka y. And I find if I meet a distiller or a brewer for mm-hmm. that matter, that's not a little you know cock cockamamie yeah i I worry about the product if they're (laughs) if they're too real i'm like okay you're not making much anything in here yeah 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 yeah, 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 you got to be a little weirdo uh because it's a scary art man so yeah yeah Yeah, i I think that there's something inherently fun and eccentric about any of the spirits right and and in the even in the wine world the winemakers the guys who own the winery i know a lot of them they they tend to be more straight-laced but the guys in the back who are winemakers Typically, you're, you don't have to dig very deep to find the weird going on. Um, and I think that that's true, right? We know and we work with folks, distillers, brewers, um, mead makers, and kombucha makers, people all over that are involved in beverages. There's just a layer of sort of quirky and fun that really makes this industry a blast to be part of. Oh, yeah. I mean, anybody that's making poison on purpose for people to drink uh, is okay in my book. Uh, <laughs> let's chat a little bit about, you know, where it all started because again, I was in here at the very, very beginning, mm-hmm. but pretty close to it. And I remember, you know, seeing smaller, you know, dis- distillation, you know, tools, uh, that have grown. Uh, I, I don't see, fr- uh, what, what's the, what's her name? Your, uh, your oh, Sandy. Sandy, the uh, OG. Uh, yeah, there she's it is. heading yeah. around the back. Yeah, uh, your OG distill. Um, you're you're still there. So I, I do remember when you first kicked this thing off, and it wasn't just a matter of hey, we're going to open a distillery. You had to fight laws. 
Yeah, you had so to recreate. You had to basically anytime you're the revere this thing. There wasn't a lot of horse riding, but yeah. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Anytime you you go to do be the first person to do something, it, there's always a little bit of extra work. Um, and so we did start off um, when we first kicked this idea around. Yeah, creating a craft distillery wasn't legal in the state of Delaware. Now it wasn't legal because no one had ever asked. Right, there was no opposition to it. Um, in fact, we passed our craft distilling bill in a total of six weeks um, because there were already wineries, there was already breweries, and all we were doing was coming along and saying, "Hey, here's this other thing. No one's ever asked about it. Is there any objection?" And I think we had one person in the house vote against it. Right, so uniformly that sounds like a really big thing but in delaware that was really easy we know folks who in other states spent years lobbying to get their their legislation passed and we you know took like a couple of walks down to legislative hall and it didn't hurt that we were walking around with sam calgione from dogfish yeah. um, because he wanted to expand the little bit of distilling he was doing in his brew pub to a bigger operation so um it was actually a lot of fun um but the that sounds like a big piece. The the long, hard part are the things like finding a location, finding the funding, like sort of getting up and running when you're not a, a well-heeled sort of um, couple of entrepreneurs or you don't have the backing of, you know, years and years of experience. I've like, you know, opening and not saying opening a distillery in Kentucky is easier, but people in Kentucky know what it looks like. They right? kind of expect you to have a distillery. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, yeah, if, yeah, yeah. if you're living there long enough, you have yeah, to. Yeah. Um, so for a place where nobody even has a concept of what that looks like, um, there's a lot of education. Mm. And, and so we spent a lot of time educating people about what this industry would look like because people have never seen it before. Um, and I think we still do that because every time we want to do something a little bit different, we run up into spots all the time where the, the, either the law doesn't equal where we want it to be or people's perceptions are very different from what that is. So education is just something we've been, we're open almost 10 years now. We've been doing it from day one. Yeah. Even in the bathroom, you have posters up kind of like talking about NASCAR and how that got start, you know, bootlegging started in NASCAR, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, which I thought was really neat. And us in, you know, here in Delaware, we have Dover, yeah, you know, Speedway, yeah. which is NASCAR. Um, it surprises me that Delaware didn't, I mean, the first state, uh, right smack in the middle of early whiskey country. I mean, Maryland, yeah. PA, right? Rise. Yeah, the whole Mid-Atlantic was yeah, big into it. Right. It actually surprises me that Delaware didn't have that flag planted yet. You know what I mean? It had been, so I have end up doing um, uh, whiskey history or distilling history stuff for the state through the Department of Historical and Cultural Affairs. So I've done a ton of research around sort of what that industry looked like in Delaware. And it was really prohibition killed the last um, oh. distillery in Delaware. It's called Levy and Gloss Kings. It was down in Dover on Water Street. Um, there's now like a ice factory, an old abandoned ice factory there. But it was it was a big part of agricultural history here, though mostly focused around brandy. Um, we grew brandy a lot. Wine. Well, yeah, Which so is a brandy big, wine and yeah, Brandywine yeah, River, okay. Brandivine, burnt wine. Yeah. Um, but for production here, it was um, apples and peaches. They were mm. major uh, agricultural crops in the late 1600s up through really the early 1900s. And so you saw that sort of small scale brandy production was one of the that was really where distilling in Delaware lived. Now we did have a couple of whiskey distilleries that were making rye whiskey that sort of mid-Atlantic um, typical type of rye whiskey. 
but it wasn't a it was never a big piece of the industry here it was always really small so after prohibition you know shut down the last of that operations there's almost no effort to restart it after prohibition we actually created a law that there is a law in the books that allows for distilleries but it's totally all about like a major industrial conglomerate type of distillery um if you wanted to come in and make industrial ethanol or something like that the law would have been in place for that but no one had really considered the the small beverage side of it uh and so that's where you know that industry was basically lost for you know nearly 100 years it was about 1914 when levy and gloss kings closed um no one made any effort until you know almost 100 years later wow here you are that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, why, how, what, when? I know your partner, uh, who who isn't Ron, who's not here, he's um, recovering from mm. something um, medically. Yep, yep. <laughs> so having a whiskey podcast, yep. the same recovery. Is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. People are like, wait a second, uh, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, he's fine. I don't want to. I just keep burying myself in whatever this is I'm doing. <laughs> um, so he's not here. I know he he has a uh, he's he has a, he's the scientist, right? He has this very, a scientific background of some sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, in conversation, I've talked to you more. Um, how does this start? How do you and this guy meet and say, you know what, let's do something that hasn't been done here for a hundred years mm-hmm. in Apple country. So we had both started and, and in Delaware, something that comes around very quickly is everybody knows everybody. Jesus, right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, uh, like very, very, you know, what, two degrees of separation, maybe if you're lucky kind of thing. So, um, I was in graduate school at the University of Delaware, um, met lots of folks, um, ended up working in public policy. At the same time, um, there was another um, young woman who was also part of my graduate program. She and I ended up working in in education and public policy afterwards. Um, But unbeknownst to me, she had met this other guy, Ron Gomes, uh, I think in like a she was teaching like a spinning class or something like that. And Ron's very fit. Not Mm. not me. Um, And they they had hit it off you know we in tracing our history turns about we were at some of the same parties we knew some of the same people kind of thing but we he and i had never met um i was working on the idea of um making a creating a small distillery right and this was you know comes from playing around tinkering in your basement um in 2009 or so i start i was traveling the country a lot for work and went into my first ever craft distillery out in portland oregon which was house spirits Mm. um which people is very different than it is now. At the time, their major product was aviation gin, which is now made by somebody sure, totally different. Um, but um, and it was literally—I mean, maybe it was a twelve hundred square foot row house that this existed in. It was really cute. I was the only person there on a Wednesday, um, and I loved the idea that these were making these guys were making fantastic gin in like essentially a gutted row house. Um, never seen that before, right? Yeah. To me, everything was always big, major industrial production. So that kicked me off in starting to learn about it. Ron, at the same time, really, he was working, um, running a a lab up at Penn State College of Medicine. Um, His background is in cellular molecular biology. And he had a lab partner who was making beer and making wine and had started to get into the craft spirits thing. Um, I think the first distillery he went off and visited was Catoctin Creek. Mm. Um, And so too early you know, entrance into the craft spirit world, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. But we we were following the same path almost at the same time. and then we had both sort of started dreaming about doing this with our, our friend or lab partner. And then those folks left. 
And I was left with like, well, I just spent like all this time and I've annoyed my wife to no end because like, <laughs> I won't talk about anything else. Um, and Ron had basically done the same thing. And he had, but we'd started at different points, which I think is important. Um, some folks do this all on their own. I know distilleries that have opened from like one person's vision and they manage everything themselves. Um, we're fortunate that we don't, we didn't do that. Um, Ron had really been focused on the business and management and the legal side of it. That's where his brain had gone. Mm. I had gone to the manufacturing production side of it. So a mutual friend sort of knew that I was interested in this, Was said something at a party that Kim's wife or Ron's wife, Kim, overheard. And they were like, wait a minute. Like, why don't we get them together and see what happens? Um, and that was August of 2011. We basically had pretty much the same idea. Um, and it took us about maybe a month of getting together once or twice a week just to talk and get to know each other and sort of brainstorm to sort of said, all right, we can do this. Let's let's take a shot. I think it was September of 2011, late September, we incorporated and sort of got to work. So different. We're both from academia. We both had lots of experience writing grants and, and sort of living in that world. Mm. Um, neither of us had any marketing background, any real business background, uh, had ever run a manufacturing facility, but, um, but we had a lot of willingness to fail um, and learn along the way. I, I love how most successful businesses or kick-ass businesses tend to start that way. Your, your, your Silicon Valley stories sound a lot like that, you know, and very much like we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> I, I don't think minus your heritage whiskeys, your, your Kentuckys, your old schools, uh, family generation after generation, minus them, I don't know that I've met any craft distillers or new up and coming distillers that don't have some. The story is always different, but it's always something along the lines of we just jumped. Yeah, we just did it. And, you, you know, just to let the listeners know, not to get too much in your business, but um, some distillers don't turn a dime for years. Some distillers don't make their first product for a long time. Some distillers, you know, there's a lot of, you know, ebb and flow, bumps, hills and valleys, you know, yep. you know better than I'm saying, oh, you know, yeah. like I <laughs> like I was there. Uh, I just get to I get to come in afterwards and enjoy the uh, the spoils. Um but I know it's a headache, man. It's a yeah. headache. I mean, how many times did you want to quit? And then COVID happened. And yeah. you did make industrial. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were doing the hand agents. sanitizer yeah. thing and cleaning products. Yeah. Um, so I think something that was different um, for for Ron and I is I think we entered with a little bit of realism. Um, now, everyone's got, you know, like sort of rose-colored glasses going into this. Um, at the time when we were talking to small distillers getting up and we went to like the ADI conferences, American Distilling Institute conference, and there were like 60, Ooh. 70 operating distilleries in the country, right? The, a small little group. There's like, you know, 400 people in a room kind of thing. Now these conferences are thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot of, of knowledge that we were sort of grabbing from all of these folks that seemed to make a lot of sense. And it was things like, you know, hey, you know, you're going to make 70% of your money in distribution. And like, if you can get a tasting room, then that's going to make up the rest of it. There was lots of thinking about like how the businesses were operating. By the time we opened two years later, all of it had changed, mm -hmm. right? So our business plan was based on this idea that um, you're going to be selling your product out to bars, restaurants, and liquor stores, and you need to focus on that to no, actually you're going to make all of your money or most of it by being at your location because you're, you're not big enough to play the distribution game. Unless you're walking into this with many millions of dollars, 
you're just not big enough to, to win in that market. Um, so we sort of lived with both worlds. We saw like the startup of craft distilleries and like sort of what it looked like in the, you know, between 2010 and 2014 kind of thing. And then we've watched it change dramatically um, over the course of the last like eight or nine years to being something where distilleries are much more local. Yeah. Um, there are those that break out nationally um, with like a product or two, but they are by far the exception, uh, not the rule. Yeah. So we were very fortunate, um, almost by accident, we ended up in this. Um, so we're sitting in an old movie theater right now, right? It's like a That's cool. 6,000 square foot yeah. old movie theater. Um, we ended up with way more space than we thought we were going to need. We were like, oh, we'll have a little like 1,200 square foot tasting bar was the original plan. We now commit more than a third of our space plus a huge outdoor facility to having a craft cocktail bar, right? Our cocktail garden and we've got food trucks. We've shifted to a destination distillery model versus what we imagined up front, which was, you know, we're going to be on the road selling this product to bars and restaurants and liquor stores, you know, around the country kind of thing. Yeah, I dig that. I I, kind of correlate that or it parallels how I feel with beers. Um, and I'm a big beer guy too, but there's some, there's some breweries, um, you know, like going up to Hershey park, there's a couple of breweries mm-hmm. up in PA and you know, anywhere you, the listener may be, you probably have a brewery near you. There's something that's cool about drinking a beer that you're not necessarily going to go find in a shop anywhere you go or that no one else is drinking. It's just your local beer. You got to put that time into traveling there, meet up with friends. The vibe is cool. It's got a cheers thing mm-hmm. going yeah. on which i think we've missed out on i think yeah. and i think covid really robbed us of that you know yeah. place to kind of go hang out and be and then taste local and tasting I, local is important now i think it robbed us of it for a time period but from our experience i think that it's actually created a more um durable appreciation for there that it is um yeah because after we reopened so we obviously got shut down like everybody else did at the beginning of COVID. Um, you know, like you watch 95% of your revenue evaporate overnight and you're like, well, this could be it. Like we, Ron had this really fancy bottle, this like many, many thousands of dollar bottle of, of whiskey that someone had given him. We got our whole staff together, popped this thing open, you know, like poured it around and we're just like, we have no idea if we're going to be here in, in a month. Yeah. So like, let's all drink this and, you know, we don't know. Sorry, we're going to do what we can and, and this and that. And then within two weeks we were up and running making hand sanitizer and our staff was as busy as they'd ever been. Um, we employ a lot of teachers, so they were off. Um, you know, they, that's cool. This was before the zoom classrooms and everything was set up. So they're like, just like, uh, how do we teach kids? We don't know. Um, so we had them in here, you know, packing hand sanitizer and everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the kids, yeah. yeah, by far. Yeah. <laughs> My kids were here. <laughs> um, but, um, but the, the, the shift happened like, you didn't even have time to think about it. Right? Yeah. It was, it was that, that sort of like lizard brain problem solving moment, moment where you're just like, we either aren't here anymore or we do something different. And we, we approached it differently than some folks. Um, you know, we didn't try to gouge people on hand sanitizer. We sold it for half of what everybody else I was selling have it for. bottles of your hand sanitizer. <laughs> yeah. 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 From the before time. Yeah. And, and I mean, it was because the goal for us was we want to stay alive yeah. not use this as some idea to try and cash in a lot of people tried to cash in off it some did very well cashing in off it mm-hmm. um but we were eventually allowed to reopen so we we were i think it was mid-summer we were allowed to reopen outdoor spaces um with the social distancing and all of that and we had 
we were very fortunate. We had done and, re- and opened in 2019 our outdoor space. Mm-hmm. It was immediately packed, yeah. right? Like there was nothing we could do. We could we were put sitting people out in the middle of the grass and like trying to come up with ways to space people out because everyone wanted to come back out. They've been locked inside for like five months. Um, but we chose not to reopen our indoor space. Um, before all of our staff could be vaccinated, we talked with our team a lot and they're like, hey, look, we're, we're not comfortable with this we we don't want to do this and so hearing from our staff was really important we were like well we're going to figure out how to weather this storm and fortunately the federal grants the state grants the loans all of that kind of stuff um like we've we filled out a lot of paperwork in our life so we were like you know the first one oh hey 1201 a.m you can submit for this 1202 yes exactly (laughs) um and, and we ended up staying closed for our indoor space for an extra year. So we didn't open our indoor space until July of 2021 um, because we wanted to honor the feelings of our staff and we wanted to make sure that people felt really comfortable. Um, and then we took it as a time to sort of retool what we did. We invested in um, new technology. We invested in tables and refixing up the space and doing all the kind of things so that when we reopened, we really doubled down on the idea of we were going to be your like great local co- uh, cocktail bar. Yeah. Um, and at the end of 2021 or September of 2021, we had also built out a, our taco truck. Or we launched our first taco truck. Which is why I'm here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. why I'm That's, here too. Uh, yeah, Gin yeah. and tacos. I'm going to live you forever. I mean? uh, so no. that, that, that sort of, we came back way stronger. We were forced to do a lot of things that we'd talked about for years, but didn't have the time, the money. Um, and I think that that has been awesome and people have really, really respected that, um, and been supportive of us. No, I remember when it all kind of shut down and a lot of people were, you know, from our point of view, do what do you think this does to the whiskey industry? And I, I, I had so much faith and I mean, I had my podcast to think about. So, you know, that's the most important thing to, (laughs) um, I, I, I thought there's no way these guys that start something so insane let something like this in them yeah. um it's just not the way it works you you know you're mad scientists and mad scientists don't let viruses shut them down yeah so, you figure it out yeah you figure it out you guys did a great job of it um and lucky us uh your product your product line is growing um i i got to be a part of your 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 first bottle and bond which was mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. incredible still have a bottle of that too very good um your proximity which is what we're drinking now mm-hmm. so guess what i'm folding into is why don't we talk a little bit about what you make mm-hmm. i mean right that's, yeah that's that's why we're here. You're, you're, I love an origin story. Sure. But yeah. let's get to the fight scene. Um, so we're drinking the proximity now. Now, I this is the first time I've had this bottle. Yeah. Um, but so I've you, had your first release. Yeah, you actually, I think in 2019, we were here for our anniversary right. party. Yep. And I think I had a little cask of this that we had, had it was like maybe six months in the cask or something like that. Yeah. We pulled some little samples of it up on the stage. Um we did release um, as a yearling some of this because I had, I think, a little three-gallon cask of it. But we, we put the majority of it away um, for at least four years. Um, and so this is it's a fun little whiskey. Um, I've really been enjoying it. Um, the, the origin story of the spirit actually comes from we made back in... 2017, 2016, we, we made a, a whiskey that used 42 different types of malted barley. Um, it was one of those things that you could never do again, a bit of a unicorn. Somebody brought in like all these 10 pound bags from an, a homebrew shop that was closing mm-hmm. down. And we're like, ah, oh, well, what am I gonna do with 10 pounds of this random one malt? Let's just throw it all in, in the still and see what happens. Um, 
and people loved it right and then we're like oh crap because we can never do that again yeah um so right around that same time though uh a malt house opened here in delaware right and raw ingredients are a big important part mm. of the whiskey industry um typically at the time malts are coming out of the midwest um or from europe um, so it was really cool to have this large production malt house open. There are some really small production malt houses that are very cool too, um, but they're they're very expensive. You know, you're 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 paying premium prices, um, which is tough as a small business, um, especially when you're going to pay for it today and then not sell it for you know three to yeah, ten right. years. Uh, so proximity malt house opened down in Laurel, and I took this recipe down to them, and I was like, hey, look, I had this weird whiskey that I made and I can't make it again, but how could we use what you make and approximate this spirit? And we all laughed because of proximity and proximity and blah, blah, blah. Um, And so they came up with a, we came up like together with a recipe that we thought was fairly close to it. What we're sipping on right now is the first batch of that. Yeah. Um, Chocolate malt. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of chocolate malt, a lot of roasted malt. Um, There are some base malts in there. There's also like some red malts, crystal malts, um, I think there's eight different types of malt that ended up going into it in different proportions to make it. Um, and then it spent four years in a uh, heavy char new white oak cask. Um, so a lot of fun, a cool, fun, like like origin story for a spirit. Um, it's one of the ones we now make one cask of this a year, yeah. basically. So it's something that we'll continue to have, but it's going to be these like one a year type of releases. It's one of those whiskeys that, yeah, especially... One of the privileges of doing what I do is I get to taste a lot of cool whiskeys all over the, you know, from all over the world. But there's these occasions where we get to taste whiskeys that are unique and one-offs. One-off things are my favorite. Mm-hmm. Like no one, like this may never happen again. Yeah. <laughs> and being back here with you and you pulled out that little barrel and pulled, you know, thiefed out a little chunky, you yeah. know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, taster. Uh, and then sipping it for the first time was gl- absolutely glorious, by the way. It was just maybe the environment, I don't know, the ether. I yeah, was in. everything goes into yeah, it. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but it was absolutely incredible. It has held on to that success. This is absolutely delicious. And and this isn't because of what's going on right now, because if you're paying attention to the whiskey world, the American single malt mm-hmm. category and all of its hoorah is happening, which we're very happy about. I'm a big American single malt fan. But to see you producing a really good American single malt that can go toe-to-toe uh, is just even more you know, impressive and it makes me happy on the inside. So, uh, absolutely (laughs) incredible. This is excellent. This is really, really good. Cool bottle, pretty bottle too. Uh, four year American single malt here. Um, are, do you sell online or are there, uh, legally we can't ship it so you can buy it and come pick it up from us on our website. But we can't ship that everybody. Yeah. 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 It's one of those things. Oh, I'm working on it every year. (laughs) Always something to do. Um, I think what, the, the American single malt category is really pretty cool. There's a couple of folks who, you know, certainly get all the props in putting the effort into creating this as a category. Um, malt whiskey has existed as a category of spirits um, in the United States since the, the, the BAM came out in 1936, basically. But all it said was it had to be made from 51% malt. Like, that's as broad as you can be. Right. He doesn't even sp- say what kind of grain had to be malted. Mm. Um, so you could always create malt whiskey in the United States. But the idea of defining it um, a little bit more specifically. So the American Single Malt Whiskey Association has created this definition that is working its way through the, the final federal mm. um, uh, approvals. But it has to be made from malted barley. It doesn't say what, you know, what that malt has to be, but it has to be malted barley. There are some requirements, sort of like how bourbon and rye right. have some more. 
they are whiskey, yes, but there are more specific things that you have to follow in order to produce those. I think that's going to be helpful um, in defining that category and letting consumers know what it means. There is some consternation amongst some distillers who have been making malt whiskeys for years who now their whiskey won't meet that. Um, and so concern that, well, I won't be able to market it as American single malt whiskey. So am I going to be pushed out? But I think for the most folks, um, it creates a uh, an incentive to to experiment because malt whiskeys are expensive, right? I mean, like, right. you know, like malts, maybe 60 cents a pound versus you can buy corn for 10 or 11 cents a pound. Well, corn yields more, right? Oh, but yeah. An and acre get, of corn will give you oh, yeah. a plethora of yeah. so many more bushels of grain than, mm. than barley. So. So you have to have an incentive to spend the money to make these products mm-hmm. um, when you can make, you know, a barrel of, of bourbon for you know a couple hundred bucks and it's going to cost you close to a thousand bucks to make a barrel of malt whiskey. Right. You need to know that there's some like some return on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that the work to define that category is going to help encourage that kind of innovation. No, I agree. And I'm not anti-category. I like I like the bourbon. I, like, I understand. I get the uh, the 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 definitioning and the, the reasoning behind category. I think if I'm a get betting man, not to go off on a tangent, uh, it's probably the last category we'll see because I think what's happening right now is distillers like beer makers are getting want a little more freedom to yeah. make something different. You have to. I mean, we can't mm-hmm. all just keep making the same thing. Uh, so how we're aging them, different kind of oaks we're finding out in the world, um, f- you know, not flavoring, but enticing different flavors chemistry chemically um chemically yeah that's yeah. No, that's uh, it, sure yeah. uh so i think you're going to see this movement of you know really neat um different yeah and i like different and you're you've done that too you have a i mean you're probably one of my favorite uh wine finishes um uh great color yeah yeah i'm <laughs> staring yeah uh and i think play being playful as a local distillery and not just saying look i'm going to make a single malt but i'm going to make a thoughtful single malt with specific grains you know local locally sourced and just give it to the local community when this thing could definitely be on the shelf selling you know and i'm sure that's you know you'd love to be on every shelf yeah some of it will probably will drift as we you know as it gets bigger here but yeah Yeah, but it's just great and it's Mm -hmm. cool so um but yeah so what's uh I, I, I know that bottle over there. I recognize. Yeah. So yeah. that one, and I, yeah, I wasn't sure if any of that ever landed in yours. Um, so that is, it was our ninth anniversary. So it's, it's all gone. I just happen to have a bottle like laying around for a special occasion. Yeah. Obviously. Um, we started playing with, um, actually during COVID, um, we started playing a little bit more with finishes. Um, and finishing in whiskey has always been a thing that's been available. Um, there's rules around what you can and cannot call a finished whiskey. And actually, so some of the updates to the federal register that went into effect in 2021 make it a little bit easier. Um, so prior to then, you couldn't count time aging in a finishing barrel towards the overall age of a spirit. Um, whereas, right, you go to Ireland or, or the UK or most of the rest of the world, that spirit could spend 10 years in a, in a used bourbon cask and then six more years in a sherry cask and then go into a neutral cask for 15 years and all of a sudden you've got a you know a 30 year old right in the u.s you couldn't call it that the first cask that it goes into had to be that new oak cask the moment you took it out of that and put it into a finishing barrel it stopped aging Um, we all know that that's not true and the federal government finally came around to this idea that like finishes 
are still part of the aging you process. You haven't halted the yeah. aging of the whiskey. You haven't whiskey halted the aging of the whiskey. You're just doing something a little bit different. Right. Um, it even allowed us to, um, we released a six-year-old bottled and bond gin. Hmm. Um, it had been aged in French um, red wine casks and um, some used bourbon barrels for six years. Um, it was really really cool i don't have any more of that banging around um yeah. but i'm just the, glad you brought it up <laughs> but the um uh prior to these changes we couldn't actually release a bottled and bond gin you couldn't release an aged gin you literally couldn't say what had happened to it to give it all of that color because gin is a product that doesn't get aged hmm. just like and at the same vodka is a product that doesn't get aged so it doesn't matter what you do that is just gin yeah. Which doesn't make sense from the consumer's perspective. The whole idea behind the, the government r- uh, rules around categories and definitions is to help consumers understand what it is that they're getting. And you're literally creating such vague definitions that you are confusing consumers. Um, and so there's some of those changes that were made in 2021 or so actually really helped, for, especially for small distilleries that want to create these weird one-off sort of unique products. Um, yeah. So, so what you have there is, is a bourbon. It was our, um, a four year aged bourbon, um, out of our new oak casks that we then put into, uh, red wine casks for two years. Um, so we could finally call it a six year old bourbon, um, and, you know, let it pick up a lot of the cool, like red wine notes, those berry notes, that little bit of astringency, like it comes off a little bit drier than the typical bourbon does. Um, it's got a very poor, I know it's not a port, but it's got a very port feel to it. Mm-hmm. Rich, dark, heavy, I like, which I adore. Yeah. Um, well, that, so one of the benefits of being a small producer is, right, I don't have to try and make a hundred barrels of that. So I wait until the winery that we work with harvests that barrel and they bring it over to me wet. Yeah. Right. It's not like it's been dried out and shipped across the world and things like that. Like, so, you know, we can get barrels that are, you know, just wet and ready to go. Um, that's going to even, you know, make a, a, that's cool. a an additional difference in, in differentiation in the product like that. The only thing that sucks is it's you make such a good whiskey and then it's such it's it's truly small batch. Um, and you hear a lot of these bigger places say, you know, I'm not going to pick on any names, but so-and-so small batch. You're like, okay, <laughs> yeah. okay, buddy, uh, small batch to you. But yours is truly small batch, yeah. which makes the it's bittersweet because it's there's the experience. You Again, goes back to that, what I was talking about earlier, something that I actually adore about whiskey. It's potentially an experience you'll never get again. Mm-hmm. And you'll have to taste the next thing yeah, yeah. and see the next painting by the artist, but you won't get to see that one, yeah. uh, which is which is a bummer. But also at the same time, it, it gives you this unique coolness that we get to hear. Now, I don't think this is the one we help bottle, right? My only bottling experience is here where we bottled some whiskeys. Was it a, f- a five-year? I don't remember. Can't remember. I think I've done it a few times here. We did it once for another uh, whiskey group. Mm-hmm. We bottled for them, and uh, I have pictures of me bottling up there on the on the line. Um, it seemed like work for you guys, <laughs> but I think it, it was very intelligent because we enjoyed it. It was like an yeah, it was yeah. like a we farm out our yeah, work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We enjoyed it. We were like, this is so cool. And then I halfway through, I'm thinking, ah, oh, these smart bastards. Uh, wow, this is this is really good. Uh, but no, no, I couldn't have I couldn't have been happier to do it. Um, okay, so you, you brought it up a couple of times, and something that's happening in the world of cast chasers is uh, we're 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 hoping to we we're not hoping we are going to expand our mm-hmm. conversations um, outside of whiskey, not leaving whiskey, but expand to other spirits um, because in my travels it's come to my attention that 
whiskey, although amazing, isn't the only thing being produced in most distilleries. Yeah. Um, and specifically gin. So, which I'm looking at, you know, vodkas and gins are, I mean, like you said, they're not, they're quick spirits that can be made. You got to pay the bills, right? Yeah. So you got to yeah. put something on the shelf. I had this strange, you know, unwarranted bad relationship with gin because I think I had a gin one time. Yep. Probably a dry London you know, dry whatever yeah. it was hated it mm-hmm. and said nope hate gin. I yep. did the, I did the thing that I tell everybody not to do with whiskey. I did it with gin. And then I had had a cocktail made with your gin. It was good. Um, I told no one because <laughs> um, I thought you know what one off. Um, and then I had some more gins out there and I realized Oh, crap. Other things are being made. That's really cool, too. Uh, oh, that was your bottle and bond we bottled. My yeah. I pulled up the picture. Yep, yeah. The four-year. Yeah. Four-year, yeah. I think the first, the first bottling of it, yeah. That was a lot of fun. A lot of memories. That's mm-hmm. on the Instagram page. You guys can check us out on that. Um, anyway, so, Jen, uh, let's chat a little bit about it. This is the first time. It's kind of a little history from, uh, you know, a historical first for us. This is going to be the first real time. Now, we had Katakton on where we talked a little bit about their branding, a little mm-hmm. bit about their gin, but we didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. I got. I want to be 100 percent honest with you and be gentle, Mike. I don't know anything about gin. I think you put flowers in it, yeah. and that's about <laughs> it, right? So, so in gin is one of the oldest spirits that's out there. Um, it is in in some variation. It dates all the way back to like the 1500s. Um, very very old. Long before what we typically think of as whiskey today was a regular product. So um, now a lot of those gins that were made back then were probably by today's standards, not great. Um, But when you move into like what we think of as more modern gin, so like the style of dry gin, and we make what what we refer to as an American or a contemporary style dry gin. um, What you're really starting off with is something that is very neutral. And then it is the distiller's job to add um, those flavorings or those botanicals to it. Mm. Um, so most gins start off quite literally as vodka. Um, and you know, you don't want to tell the gin world this, but like, you know, gin is essentially flavored vodka. I mean, does it matter the grain? So I think it does in some respects. Um, especially if you have a goal to try and represent some of the grain characteristics in it. Um, there are a couple of gins that are out there that where, they they don't distill up to the same level of purity as you would for for something that was going to be vodka. Um, you know, you could distill it like you were distilling a whiskey, and then add in your flavoring botanicals, and you're going to create often tended to call like the Yenever style of gin, the Dutch mm. style of gin. But you are going to get some grain characteristics. It'll have that little bit of moonshiny kind mm, of flavor to mm. it. You know, that unaged whiskey flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's going to have those those balance of botanicals. Now, that is probably a tiny percentage of the gin that's out there. Most gins start off as what's called grain neutral spirit. Um, we use a wheat grain neutral spirit because I think it's very smooth. It has a nice sweetness to it that I really enjoy to begin with. Um, but you can quite literally pick any neutral spirit. And then really the job of the distiller in making a gin is trying to create a balance of different flavor botanicals that are going to be harmonious and appealing. Um, so you can see some gins there. They're quite literally, there are single botanical gins, right? All they put in it is juniper. Um, there are some really simple ones. There's sort of a holy trinity of gin, um, juniper berries, coriander, and angelica root. You're going to find those in almost every gin that's out there. 
But the really fun part of being a craft distiller is you could take those first couple that are that are in there and then the sky is the limit. As long as whatever you're adding into the still along with it is um, what's called grass, generally regarded as safe, um, that's on the, the USDA grass list, you can use it. Um, oh, okay. So for us, that's things like a lot of lavender, lemon balm, orris root, sweet goldenrod, um, crab. Yeah, sure. You throw some crabs <laughs> in there. You throw. Um, <laughs> um, I'm sure. I guarantee you, somebody does it, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, so uh, Maryland. Yeah. Looking yeah, at you, Maryland. Grass, Maryland. That's what you know. They're famous for oh. the crab grass. Go so on. the 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 fun there is that you can differentiate yourself very easily. So I've had gins from all over the world and all over the country. But those made by the big distillers, they're sort of going for a target, that London mm. drive. You see some variation. What, what, what makes it dry? So dry literally means no sugar is added to it. Mm. Um, there are styles of gin, the Yenever style of gin, or also the Old Tom style of gin, um, where some sweetness can actually be added to it. Um, so dry in the same way that dry is used in the wine industry, dry means no sugar. Gotcha. Um, so, so the dry gin is basically, you know, you've got alcohol, there's some water in there to cut it back. And then the, the flavoring components, the, the botanicals, botanicals, yeah, no additional sweetness or anything added yeah. to it. Um, most people probably don't know or understand or care about that because they have, you know, an association with gin, but that's what dry comes from. I think I prefer wet gin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A little bit of wet, you know, yeah, yeah, goes yeah, a long yeah. way. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, this is ac- excellent, dude. This first off, the nose is out of this world. Uh, I couldn't tell you what. I, unlike whiskeys, a lot of time I can pick out what I'm smelling. I got some allergies. You may be able to hear it. Delaware and our allergies. <laughs> it's a thing. Um, I have no idea what I'm nosing here. I just know it smells incredible. So lavender, when we set out to make this gin, this is really when Ron and I were working together, literally in my basement with like, you know, test tubes and like scales and weighing stuff out. Um, Very like Breaking Bad looking sort of like activities in the basement. Um, We we started off by making, I think we probably made like 60 different little infusions of different herbs and spices and botanicals. Mm. And then we sat there with pipettes and started mixing things in and we're just like, okay, well, I really like this, you know, flavor that we're seeing from lavender. So let's add, you know, like 10% that and let's add 1% this and this. And we, we started trying to craft out these flavors, but we knew from the very beginning, we didn't want to make a London dry style gin. So that's the first one you drank. It's the first one almost everybody drank. It's the one that smells like Christmas trees, smells like grandpa, like, you know, like something like that. And if you have a bad experience with that and you sign off gin, you just signed off most of the best cocktails that have ever been yes. made, right? Like you yeah. write off just fantastic drinks. Um, and we always wanted to present our spirits in cocktails. It's the way people consume them, even for, for whiskeys. You know, most whiskey is consumed in a drink, in a cocktail, not neat as we're sipping on them or, or on the right. rocks yeah. like, by volume. Um so the idea was, how do we make a gin that we think is going to grab people who don't like gin, had that bad experience or were afraid of having the bad experience because they know somebody who did. Um, so we knew immediately we wanted to downplay the, the Christmas tree, the, the juniper and the coriander flavors that are in that and boost some of the other f- characteristics. So lavender, um, lemon balm, orris root, those are three botanicals that we use in very, very high volumes in order to bring out these more floral, soft, herbaceous characteristics yeah. in it. It's like a flower garden soup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, like a, like 
literally like tasting a bouquet without it tasting gross. How, how is this? Sure. Is this working for anyone? <laughs> um, One of the strangest um, things that we've heard, and I've heard it more than once, so there must be some value to it. Um, somebody said that it sort of reminded them of Fruit Loops. And I was like, I don't, yeah. I don't have a ton of experience with Fruit Loops, but yeah. But then I heard it like probably three times um, that there's this sort of like floral berry sort of yes. flavor to it that comes through. I get that. Um, so not a bad thing. No, no, no. I, it, yeah, it wasn't said with with malice. It was sort of like a a, a weird really thing. Good. So what's that? You, you don't taste. You're not a Fruit Loop fan. <laughs> I am many a night in my underwear eating Fruit Loops. <laughs> yes, yes. In standing uh, in front of the yeah, fridge, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bowl of Fruit Loops. <laughs> not even my cereal. Yeah, not even my no. house. <laughs> um, so let's talk. Uh, uh, you brought up cocktails, and mm-hmm. I, I that's kind of where I found the love of gin is cocktails. Um, you hear that, folks? Yeah. Tornado warning? What is that? No, it's our fire siren. So the, one of the joys of a small town is we're located directly <laughs> across the street from the firehouse. Um, so Mike's uh, gearing up in his firefighter gear as well. He's yeah, also that's right. the chief it's of the fire department. Stripped off my <laughs> kilt and I'm running out yeah, the door. Yeah. Um, it uh, so yeah. Whenever there's a fire call, we're gonna get the whistle in the background. Um, it's sort of fun. We used to try and like do an idea of doing shots for that, but then you have a day where there's a lot of fire calls. And things don't go really well. And then they're coming here. Yeah, yeah exactly. You got drunk and burned the place down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, a, a siren is a is apropos for you know my explanation of how much I like this. <laughs> so I actually paid them to do that. Oh, very, even better. Thanks, yeah. guys. You can cut it off now. <laughs> um, we're just going to keep going because when you're live, when you're well, when you're raw in studio, this is what happens. <laughs> and I know you're thinking, Bobby, you're a professional. You should edit this out. <laughs> not going to happen so you're going to get that in the background so enjoy and if you've been listening to us for this long you're 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 fine yeah um so let's talk about cocktails Mm -hmm. so what are some of the the, here's the thing about gin i know a whiskey cocktail i know what they are yeah Uh, an old-fashioned you know yeah i've had gin cocktails that i didn't know were gin cocktails Mm -hmm. yeah you know what I mean? I think a lot of I think there's a lot of known drinks out there that people don't even realize they're drinking gin. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, like, if, the, if you're drinking a gin and tonic, right? It's in the name, and you're you're expecting it, and 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 that's already got a bittering agent in it from the tonic water. Um, so you know, there's folks who they associate with gin and tonic not just with juniper or mm. gin, not just with juniper flavor, but also with like the the bitter flavor of tonic water. And if you don't like those two things and that's your first experience with gin, then like you're just going to write the whole thing off. Right. Right. But there are a lot of fantastic classic cocktails that are made with gin. Right. So like Corpse Revivers um, is a great one. Aviations are a great one. Um, really, the cocktail resurgence has brought the Negroni back. Yeah. Um, I love Negronis. Um, people think that they're like the worst thing on earth because they're both gin and really bitter. But I think it's fantastic. I, it. I like them. Um, so with like, Prosecco. Oh, the uh, yeah. the. the What's it? The, what was that whole? I can't remember what her name is. Yes, yes. We we got yeah. that right as soon as that hit the uh, yeah. the world. We had people coming in asking for uh, yeah. yeah that that style of Negroni, which I'm like, it doesn't have any gin in it. Like, it's not uh, what you think it is. <laughs> no. Um, so and, and especially if you go back to so the folks who want to revisit the sort of the the glory days of cocktails, right? The 1920s or so is what people associate and prohibition where the gin would have been absolutely awful. You had um, a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. The point of it, like yeah. gin Rickies and things like that. Yeah. Um, the, the, the number of great gin cocktails is just prolific. Um, and so we use it in, in a lot of cocktails, probably second to vodka um, in what we pour 
because it is very useful, especially if you're playing around with citrus flavors, mm-hmm. you're playing around with herbal flavors. Um, there's a lot of great modifiers, liqueurs out there that do really, really well with gin. So we try and work it into lots and lots of places and we constantly get the, wow, I didn't like gin, but I really like this. Yes. Um, and, and it opens a door to people and we're like, yeah, so now let's talk about this thing. Like the same way people learn to drink whiskey, right? And you start with really light whiskeys or, you know, you start with something very soft and then eventually you can work your way up. The same thing happens with gin. Before you know it, then they're like, oh, maybe a gin and tonic is okay for me. And I do like a little bit more of that flavor. You kind of get used to, sometimes I like funky because um, I like like weird cheeses and stuff. So it, it, if I taste something and I don't like it, I do tend to try to come back to it. There's only a few that I'm just like, this is never going to happen again. Mm-hmm. Sambuca. Sorry. <laughs> I'm a lort. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Mike Day. Uh, my you know? friend over at, uh, yeah, at, uh, at, um, Farmer and the Cow. It's yeah. one of those reasons why Chicago is just a strange oh place. It's disgusting. <laughs> um, but I, I found one of my favorite cocktails is a gin cocktail, and it also seems to be an asshole thing to order, um, which I find hilarious. That's uh, the Ramos Gin Fizz. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the reason, cause I, th- I might be wrong, but I think if it's the Ramos version, it's a six-minute shake. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. psychotic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a good way to get your bartenders really pissed. You better it. tip a lot. Yeah. And you have to, because I've tried to make them at home, and if you don't shake them for the right amount of time, you don't get that head and all yeah. that stuff. But they taste, yeah, they're wonderful, incredible. Um, kind of like an ice cream float kind of thing going on. Yeah, I, I and you start thinking about, wait a minute. So this is gin and cream, mm. and it's got like orange flower water, and it's got lime juice in it. It's got these things. You're like, why is this fantastic? Fant- <laughs> it tastes like an orange sickle. Yeah, like a creamy, uh, yeah, like a like a fruity. Flo- I don't know. I can't explain it. It's it's one of uh, top favorite cocktails, and I probably get it maybe a handful of times because of how hard it we we had one in new orleans yeah. um and they actually had a sh- paint shaker mm-hmm. so it was yep. they could put it in that and they were fine so I ordered a few you know, roosevelt there. bar right mm-hmm. uh and uh but i like to go to other i like to go to applebee's and order one <laughs> and uh they're like what i'm like yeah yeah so we, we we had a recipe or a couple of fizzes i think one year um one summer we had two fizzes on our menu we had a ramos gin fizz and we had, a, I think we called it a clementine fizz, both of which were absolutely fantastic. But if um, you had to shake them and you had to do a dry shake because of egg whites and then you had to do a wet shake. Right. So you've got like a minute of a dry shake and then you're doing a wet shake for like three minutes. We have, I have a, a drawer with a ton of timers in it because mm-hmm. we're like, no, no, no. It literally needs to be yes. a minimum of three minutes. We're setting a timer when you shake these and people love them you get that head that that pushes up above the collins mm-hmm. glass like an inch and you garnish it and it looks fantastic and the bartenders were just like if you ever do that again we're all gonna quit you know we're never <laughs> like, we're never, never gonna work for you <laughs> no we're shutting the bar down <laughs> yeah. that's funny they're good though unfortunately we'll yeah. find something else that's just as good and maybe we'll move on yeah um okay so what do we have next i want to i want to be i want to touch on a couple more and then we'll um so I, i'm looking at uh Two two classics that I see up and coming. I've really gotten to rum uh, mm-hmm. recently, um, and rum's been around. It's not new. I didn't invent no, it. Yeah. No, we, it's 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 been happening. Um, basically, distilling sugar, mm-hmm. but rum can be great. 
Something else I've entered, though, that I see a lot of distilleries doing that I think is really cool is brandy. Yeah. And we kind of alluded to it earlier. Uh, a Delaware term is brandy wine. We have the brandy wine river, the brandy wine. Well, I don't know if it has anything to do with brandy or wine or if they just named it that. Yeah, there's um, one of those great stories that's like a ship ran up on the rocks at the where the river dumped in. And they right. called it the brandy wine river because it was carrying um, brandy vin, burnt wine, yeah. which is what the old name for brandy was. And... True or not, you know, who cares? Who but, cares? Yeah. yeah. But well, we'll, t- we'll tell our stories yeah. and keep our secrets. So I'm going to have a little bit of the uh, brandy. Yeah, it's, uh, so, it's a great brandy, yeah? Yeah. yeah. So I brought out... Um, it's clear. Mm-hmm. So I brought out um, two new sort of experimental things for us. Um, so one of the things that we've been doing for a number of years is actually we work with some of the local wineries around here and we distill their wines. Um you know, sometimes that's a wine that they, they don't have enough of or, or there's something that might have like gone a little bit wrong. The color didn't come out right. Um, and so pretty much, you know, once or twice a year, I'll end up with uh, a bunch of wine comes up here. We typically redistill it and then send it back out to them that they're going to use to fortify to make uh, port style or dessert style wines. But um, sometimes we'll hold on to a little bit of that because I, I really like it. Um, that's dangerous. Yeah. So. There is, um, if you have a chance to go down um, ever to Chile and Peru, um, the the style of brandy that they make, the Pisco style brandies, are these unaged brandy. Um, in the United States, great brandies technically have to be aged three years. Mm. Um, there's an aging requirement for it. So there is a little bit of a carve out, um, if you're going to call it a like a white brandy, and there, there's ways to get around it, which is what we have to do for this. But um, these unaged brandies are really popular in a lot of the rest of the world, but they've never caught on much in the United States. I've never seen a clear brandy before. Yeah. So they all come in as, or well, actually, the the one that people know of is the, um, I guess, Hennessy makes like a, they have one where they they filter it to remove the color out of it. And it used to be only available in the Caribbean and people would buy it and bring it back. Uh, I can't remember what the Mm. name of it is. But... um, Sounds overpriced. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The... The grape brandies, these unaged grape brandies, have been used in lots and lots of cocktails. The most famous of them is the Pisco Sour. Mm -hmm. Um, And that Pisco-style brandy is you're using this unaged grape spirit, right? And then you're mixing it in the classic sours recipe with some lime juice and some simple syrup, egg white. Um, But they make fantastic drinks. Um, So we've, we've sort of, over the years, have accumulated, you know, like, oh, we've got five gallons of brandy made from this type of grape, and five gallons of brandy made from this type of grape. And so we're going to start releasing those a little bit as sort of experimental things. You know, we might have 60 bottles or 80 bottles of it. Um, They're targeted towards the cocktail program, because there's not a lot of people who are just sipping on them neat. But I think they're really awesome spirits. And and I want more people to see what they're like and try them, especially in cocktails, but neat as well. Yeah, I have a dog that wears a collar thing that I put brandy in. So when the kids fall into the snow or whatever, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, how old is that reference? Do they even do that anymore? Totally. You know what I mean? <laughs> remember what, what kind of dog was the Saint Bernard with the big yeah. old getting treat people drunk because they were free, which is terrible for you. Oh yeah, not if great if you've got yeah, hypothermia. Yeah, but it's actually the but if you're gonna die, you know, you know, I don't know brandy <laughs> from a dog. Um, yeah. Does the dog have any? Uh, we're getting off on a tangent. So just so. Um, to play the layman here, which I very much am, and for the listeners out there, brandy is distilled. You're, you're, you're taking wine, which is your beer and wine is not distilled. It's mm-hmm. aged yep. and it the ferments and yep. alcohol. Can be aged, yeah. Right, sure. Um, but to make a brandy, 
it's it's literally you're distilling it. Yeah, so you are starting off with a a wine. Mm. Um, now, depending on what you want to make, if you just want to call it brandy, it has to be made from grapes. Um, you can make a whole variety of fruit brandies. Um, we have some barrels around here of apple brandy and, and peach brandy. Those are made from, you know, uh, an apple wine or apple uh, fermented hard cider or from uh, a peach wine. If you want to, if you're going to use a fruit, you have to call it the name of the fruit. So it has to be an apple brandy or a peach brandy. But if you see something that just says brandy, then that is um, uh, made from grapes. Um, so the wine industry and the brandy uh, industry have been really, really closely intertwined. In fact, most of the original distilled spirits that you, if you go, you know, back to the, the monasteries and things and in Europe, they're going to be grape based spirits. Those original gins, um, those were, they were using wine. Um, sometimes in some cases it may have been mead, like honey wine, mm -hmm. but typically you were talking about grape based wine as the, the base that they were then distilling to extract the, the eau de vie, the water of life from it. Yep. Um, so brandy is a really, really old product. It is also one in the United States that's never been hugely popular. Um, it made a, a big splash really, really early on because it's what the, the colonists wanted to drink. They, you know, um, Jefferson started growing grapes and things like mm. that, and um, ostensibly for wine, but also for brandy. Um, the the major California wine industry has always produced a lot of brandy, but the way that people are often introduced to it is in like blackberry brandy, which is essentially like a little bit of brandy and a lot of sugar in a liqueur form, a flavored brandy. Yeah. And, yeah. and so the brandy is the source of the alcohol there. Mm. Yes, but it is not brandy in any way, shape or form mm. that could have been vodka. And there's lots of rules around brandy. Um, similar to like whiskeys. If you distill it above a certain point, you can't call it just brandy anymore. Um, up to 179 proof, you can call it brandy. From 180 proof up to 195 proof, um, it is light brandy uh, or neutral brandy. And then you get into neutral spirit above that. So in making something like this for the wineries, we distill it up to about that 175, 178 proof. So it's still considered brandy. But when they go to then take it and, and mix it in and, and fortify wines with it, it's not going to contribute too much of a heavy character for them. Okay. Um, so it's a it's a neat spirit, right? There's lots of flexibility in how you do it. Um, what we're going to try and do here is as we release some of these, we integrate it into. So there's at least a cocktail on our menu this summer that uses this brandy um, as a way to sort of begin to introduce people to this class of spirit. I love it. Uh, as you were talking about brandy, I jumped ahead and I poured some of the silver rum. Um, I wanted to save one of my favorite beverages for last, mm -hmm. um, which I know you would think whiskey, but I love rum. Yeah. Rum is, rum is, rum is one of those spirits that, uh, it and tequila have both been in my life in the same way for the same amount of time. Tequila was just meaner and louder about it. Some for some reason, I survived rum, um, rum and cokes, rum shots, rum in yeah. general. Um, but rum is a very sugary flavored sweet. It's made from sugar, right? Yep. Um, so that kind of makes sense. It, it's it's very typically flat noted to me. Mm -hmm. I don't get a lot. Of, it's just it's like bourbon. It's got it smell. Rum smells like rum. Bourbon smells like mm -hmm. bourbon. Mm -hmm. um, although this has a lot more going on in the glass. There's a bit of a dance here. Yeah. So tall, obviously, you've done something different because you're not, you're not like the rest. 
Well, so this is actually quite different for us. This is is actually a place where we're experimenting with blending um, our product and other um, products. Um, so, yeah, rum is a great, it's a really old spirit. Um, it's made from any sugar cane derivative. So in, in some cases, that's going to be molasses. Um, but it can be, if you're down in, if you're drinking like cachaça, like that's going to be basically like cane juice and, mm. and the, the French West Indies, the Martinique style rums where it's like straight cane juice and you get these very vegetal set of flavors all the way to the, the ones that are, could be basically made from white sugar. Um, mm. the, they're very, very, very neutral. So the vast majority of the rums that most people know are going to be the the what is often called the Puerto Rican style of rum, or used to be the Cuban style of rum, depending on you know where you live and how you feel about embargoes. Mm-hmm. But um, it is very, very, very neutral. So you can distill it all the way up to 189 proof, and it's still considered to be rum. But you hit 190 proof, and it becomes cane spirit at that point. So you can distill off these very, very, very neutral rums that then you can flavor with all sorts of flavorings. You can, and you have this very, very neutral, um, really easy to mix into cocktails, right? Like, so great, you know, yeah, it's going into your rum and Cokes, but it's, it's in your daiquiris and all these things. There's yeah. not a lot going on with it. So it's easy to work with. Yeah. There's a whole nother style of rum. Um, the Jamaicans are probably the most famous or the, the French West Indies style where they're actually trying to capture a lot of the esters from fermentation. Um, these are, hot and dirty ferments for rum uh, you know there's jokes about they used to shovel in horse poop and like throw in dead animals into the fermenters to increase the amount of free amino nitrogen that was in these to really help this stuff go off and it gross. Creed, yeah absolutely okay. gross um okay. but probably delicious yeah um, i mean yeah so but that those styles of rum have these really cool estery notes for it um, I really like that, right? So when we set out to do this, what we actually did is we partnered with um, a, an importer who brings in some of these really high ester note rums in small quantity. Um, we can't make it here. I mean, what it amounts to is I don't have the equipment. I don't mm. have the right environment. There are things that can be done better in one place versus another. Mm-hmm. I think rum is the biggest one. Um, yeah. you, you need hot moist air now this week has been a hot moist week um here but um these open ferments you need these special wild yeasts and things that don't exist here a lot of the u.s made rums and i know people who make them um there's some that are very good but the vast majority of them are very flat they don't have a lot of dimension and so as we've thought for years about making rum one of my biggest holdups is i don't know that i can make it the way i want it um, and so what we decided to do was actually partner with somebody who was bringing in some of these blending rums and then we could make part of the rum ourselves and then we could blend it with cool. a rum from somebody else that really kicked off the flavor. And so that's what you're tasting right there. This is an experimental force. The first batch that we've done sort of playing with it to see one, how does it work on our end? How do we use it in cocktails? What's the response of the community? Um, but I'm loving it. That's, that's what that, I was drinking I, a lot of yesterday and the day great. before. Um, and, and in the in the rum world, blending has never been looked down on. In the whiskey world, right, we've got our single malt whiskeys and we've got our rules against blending that we have for bourbons and rye, all the straight whiskeys in the United States. Um, rum has always been about blending. There have, you know, a, a small number of very large distilleries that would create all of these what they call marks. Right. And so you see these blends of rum that are super famous, Pusser's rum and, 
and you know the ones that have been around for forever but they're never made by one distiller they're usually made by a blending house and they're buying rum from you know six ten different locations and then blending it in a special form um, that's part of that industry i think we we honor um, by realizing that something can be made better someplace else than we can probably do it ourselves no, i respect that um, I and really you know, it, it's a new thing for us, and it's something else that we now now it's another thing to explain to people. Like, hey, you know, yeah, everything else that you're trying here, hundred percent came out of my stills, like, and, and all this. This is something that's not that. This is something where we work with somebody who can do something better than we can, and we make it work on our end. Well, I think it's interesting. Uh, people want locally sourced, um, which I'm. I love that. You know, I'm a big fan of bees, for example, but bees don't if using that analogy or metaphor they're not the best everywhere and i mm-hmm. think spirits and, and things like grain is a yeah, great example sure. you know uh wheat grows better in some places than it does in other places so does corn temperature is a big part of it um how you age your whiskey size it all those things vary. but what what you get when you source a spirit from somewhere else is then you get to one of my favorite things you get to experience the artistry of blending mm-hmm. which i think now we're starting to see and appreciate more in whiskey. Yeah. Um, wine has been doing it for a while. Obviously, everybody's been doing it for a while. But blending in itself is a, is a master class if you're oh, good at it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, no, bravo there. So, our lineup today has been above and beyond. It always is, Mike. Um, you invited us into your, your, your distill, your, your home, your, uh, your, your laboratory here. It's a beautiful old theater, and uh, the show's better now. <laughs> um, in my, in my opinion, um, I can't thank you enough for letting us come in and finally put this on the record. Uh, we've had many a conversation and I've learned yeah. a lot from you. You're, you're a wealth of knowledge, but I'm, I'm glad we got to record it and uh, get it out to the world. Um, where, where are you located? Where can they, fi- where can my listeners find you? So our, our headquarters here is in Smyrna, Delaware, um, right downtown by the firehouse. If you hear the whistle, <laughs> um, follow the whistle and you'll, you'll end up with us. Um, and, um, we have a, we have our cocktail, um, our cocktail bar we have an art gallery we've got a big outdoor seating area our production facility is all located right here in our, our little town in smyrna delaware um, and then we do distribute our products so um, you'll find them throughout delaware at m- the bigger liquor stores and i think we've got about um, 10 other states um, through a partnership with total wine for a number of those and a few others we we so you can find us a few other places unfortunately one of the major things we get is asked if we can ship delaware is one of the yeah. Very few states that does not allow any shipping still. We're working on that. Um, so hopefully someday we'll be able to uh, to ship products. But um, at the moment, come visit us. Try some spirits. Have a great cocktail. And uh, we'll it's see great. you in Smyrna. It's <laughs> great cocktails. Great people. Great fun. They, you do a, they do a lot. You guys do a lot, too. Charity events. You do that art show. I've been to two of them now, I think, um, where you're auctioning, you know, auctioning off. We actually got um, a barrel head um, yeah. from one that was made by... Uh, the same well, who, what did he do he painted for a film uh, uh, the hood of a car ah crap i can't remember the name uh-huh. that that guy which mm-hmm. i'll come back to later in editing i'll edit it it'll sound like i knew what i was talking about uh anyway so you you guys do a lot for the community smyrna is an amazing little town um if you're heading down the to to the beaches of delaware you're gonna pass smyrna so yeah. stop here grab a bottle meet some people and uh, it's fun. It's a good time. And uh, I couldn't be th- more thankful for this and uh, to have a friend like you, Mike, and to uh, let us come and crash your party um, and then go eat tacos and, and drink go. more. Um, <laughs> Happy to have you. Thanks, man. <laughs> Cheers. Uh, Cheers. Listeners, remember, uh, it's not about finding the perfect dram or bottle or spirit. It's, it's all in the chase. 
keep chasing. Cheers. Thank you. us cool yeah that was fun holy it's all fucking good oh cool yeah i didn't get a lot of that yeah that's what i like yep so i'm a big sour fan Mm -hmm. those are my favorite kind of cocktail like soury fruity flavorful cocktails in my head just like oh this is everything yeah yeah. I think of the spirits that we make, the one that gets the best, um, the reaction, right, is 